Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I'm Jason, a guy who is depressed and also has not wrote a book. (laughs) And I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. I'm Caroline. I'm also a person in long-term recovery. And today we're here with Brooke Seam. Brooke is the author of a new book out in September called May Cause Side Effects. Uh, She's also been on the Food Network, Chopped, uh, as one of their champions. And we have Brooke on today to talk with us about her book. And uh, we'd like to give you a couple minutes, just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your experience and why you wrote the book. Sure. So like you said, my name is Brooke Seam and I am the author of the new book called May Cause Side Effects. It is, it's my debut memoir. It's, it's actually, it's about antidepressant withdrawal and then a little bit more of, you know, recovering from depression and also medicating children and the consequences and long-term questions to think about when it comes to that topic. And, you know, for me, I wrote this book because when I was going through psychiatric drug withdrawal, I didn't have a book like this. And I really wish I'd had something to help me understand that what I was going through was caused by the drugs I was on. This was not, you know, a default in my brain. I was not broken. Uh, There was not something wrong with me. I was not mentally ill. All of those were questions that I had while I was going through withdrawal. And, you know, I basically wrote the book I wish I'd had at the time. And it was a long process. I started writing it in 2017. It didn't come out until 2022. And since then, the conversation around psychiatric drug withdrawal has changed quite a bit. There's a lot more awareness around uh, the risks and side effects of long-term use of these drugs and very pleased to see that has happened and that there has been a shift, but there is still a huge, huge amount that the general public and many, many, many doctors and prescribers don't know about this topic. And so my goal is just to help people understand what withdrawal can look like, what to look out for, how to be better at avoiding it. And, you know, hopefully it will stop some misdiagnosis of mental illnesses that people don't actually have because instead they're actually just experiencing a reaction to coming off the drugs. Yeah. And it's good to see a little bit of a a shift. I think I grew up in the mid eighties to early nineties where this introduction of, of psychiatric drugs for young kids was coming on to, you know, identifying kids as ADHD and putting them on different antidepressant medications. And at least, you know, when I was an adolescent, like that seemed to be four out of five of my friends were identified as something and being put on some kind of drug. You know, it always seemed like that that wasn't healthy, but that just seemed to be what was becoming kind of common practice with just kids have problems, you put them on a medication, that'll fix it for them. It's even more common now. I mean, it's definitely not gotten, you know, the use of these drugs has certainly not diminished over time and, you know, neither have these issues. I mean, from my perspective, the the mark of a successful treatment would be the, you know, lowered instances of 
these issues and lower suicide rates and lower depression rates and you know higher happiness and overall well-being and satisfaction rates none of that has happened so from my perspective this has been a huge huge failure and the longer people hold on to this idea that a pill is the answer to our problems the worse it's going to get and I, I you know I kind of almost can't understand how we can continue to operate how we're operating based on what we know it's it's tricky and, and I find myself running into this concept a lot where it's this idea of like almost if you have something that partially works we're so unwilling to let go of that to seek something that might work better it's almost like we don't want to let go of this thing that 25 percent kind of sort of helps so we'll just stick with that for a long period of time instead of stopping that and saying, okay, that's not good enough. Let us really, really search for something that could help. I think really what's happened is that so much of our society and our culture is asking us to look outside of ourselves for solutions. So especially if you you know consider that everything is moving so fast, right? I mean, I remember being a kid in the early 90s where you'd see something in a catalog and on TV and you had to first save up a bunch of money for it. Then you had to call them and order it. And then they had to put it in the mail and it would arrive in like three to four weeks if you were lucky. And there was this there was this patience and almost this resilience and like, you know, getting the thing you wanted that was that was learned during these processes, and then you'd get it and it would be wonderful and exciting. But now we don't you don't have to do that. We have a credit card that we can whip out. It'll be delivered in, you know, an hour to two two days. there's there's no waiting. There's instant satisfaction left, right, and center. And so we've kind of then taken that mentality and dumped it onto health all sorts of health right and plus the amount of information we have you know research has become there's so much research out there and it's so much more available to us than it ever used to be so that i think the instinct is to say okay what out there in the world where is the solution to my problem we're we're, we're we've we're an evolved species I must be able to take some supplement to counter this or, you know, some pill to make this better. And I want it fast and that's it. Toss in the fact that you can't measure mental illness. There's no biomarker. You can't take a blood test. Not a single piece of like DNA or genetics genetics that we have found that indicates mental illness. It doesn't exist. There's not a test to determine whether or not your brain chemistry is balanced, as they like to call it. None of that exists. It's complete guesswork, usually by somebody else who doesn't know you as well as you know yourself, who then gives you chemical intervention and says, okay, well, this might help. And then, you know, I guess if you're lucky, it does. But if you're a lot of people, it doesn't do much at all. So, you know, whereas the perspective that I take now after having gone through this and just the background is that, you know, my dad passed away when I was 15. I was put on a whole bunch of psych drugs for depression and anxiety. And then they were completely unmonitored for the next 15 years. And it wasn't until I was 30 that I was objectively doing very badly. Like I was, I was having suicidal ideation. I was miserable. Like I hated my life. And I realized kind of one day that like, I shouldn't be this depressed if I'm on this amount of antidepressants. And so I started to get off these drugs. And what I learned in this process and through going through withdrawal was that the problem was me. <laughs> and that's a hard thing for people to really accept. And I don't say that in the sense that I was fundamentally flawed and there was nothing I could do. I say that in the sense that, you know, at the center of the world I was living in is me. And I am the one who is responsible for creating and changing the cha what I wanted to see in my world. And 
that was a long multi-year process that required a lot of help, a lot of counseling, a lot of therapy, a lot of hard choices, like, you know, leaving where I was living and closing my business and doing all sorts of things. But once you start making those choices, you start to see a different world reflected back at you. And then you will start to understand that this is all an internal, it's an internal journey and the power all comes from within you. It's not going to come from outside. I'm not saying we need to like be a socialist or a communist country, but when you tell me that like all of us seek this external solution for the way we feel inside, that really does seem like almost the only way that capitalism could play out right? Like in order to sell things, it's got to be something outside you. And in order to sell it, you've got to be discontent. And like, there's been billions of dollars spent by, by firms and businesses to make commercials and advertising that creates a slight discontent for people Mm -hmm. without the product they're advertising. So like, honestly, unfortunately, it's kind of like, that's where we are going to come to of assuming it's an external thing. That is the answer in our society. Well, especially when the external world is now in our pocket all the time, right? I mean, like it doesn't even have to be something that's sold to you directly, like that you pay money for, as much as it could be this kind of life you're not living, this ideal you're not living. And yeah. you've got, you know, even if you're just comparing yourself to your friend on Instagram, again, that's something outside of you that is right. driving how you feel inside. So I mean, it's a huge challenge because of the world we're in and a lot of people don't have the ability to disconnect or turn off or, you know, do all those things that we kind of know are better for us, right? Like, you know, going for a hike instead of, you know, having drinks with friends, better for us, but whether or not like that's something that's practical in our life or, you know, depending on what our work is, it's not necessarily easy. Yeah. And then they tell you, you can go do like maybe years of like therapy and spiritual work and all this mm-hmm. other stuff, or you can just take this pill and go on right. about your day and that'll fix it. Yeah. And, and the, the years of therapy may or may not be covered by your insurance. Right. <laughs> and you know, the pill is something that you can get delivered to your door and now you can get it through telehealth because like, why put any friction between these, you know, mind altering drugs? It's just, I don't know. I think it's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Five and minute I, doctor visit and you're prescribed some off label, yeah. you know, even, <laughs> even better. I've had a legit doctor's visit where I never saw the doctor. I emailed them yep. what I felt and they emailed me back how they thought I was feeling. And then they sent me me- medicine to the store. This wow. terrifying. Never talked to a soul. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, look, <laughs> if you've got like a cut on your finger and your fingers swelled up to the size of a sausage, like you could probably take a picture of it and show it to a doctor and they'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, it's infected. Here's some antibiotics, right? That's a very different thing Mm -hmm. than being able to either than being able to just report symptoms that may or may not be real. I mean, people fake this stuff all the time for ADHD drugs or whatever they want, you know, and then getting these really strong and powerful psychoactive substances that change the way our biology works that is affecting our entire society. So and and to speak to that, uh, I am a a therapist, so I can see someone for two years, once a week, twice a week and have a pretty good idea of their general state of being. Mm -hmm. I can't prescribe anything, but I can tell them, hey, just go talk. Oh, you don't have a primary care doctor. Oh, just go get one and you'll have a five minute conversation and they'll give it to you if you tell them you're set. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's like, okay, that doesn't make any goddamn sense at all. Yeah. Well, and then you find out a lot of these things, especially in children, are being prescribed off label. So they've never really been tested or, or even experimented with on kids. It's kind of like, here, let's try this. It's like throwing spaghetti at the wall and 
If it works for one out of 20 kids, oh, that's fine. If it doesn't, then we'll just put you on something else. We'll just give you the next one in the list of medication. Well, and what's the definition of works too, right? I mean, like, especially like what if we take this, the very, very extreme bell curve, you know, cases like on a bell curve, right? Like we kind of cut out the extremes on both end because in any, whenever you're looking at any of this, there's always going to be outliers, but like, from my perspective, a lot of, you know, the definition of what works for children is what makes them easier for the adults around them to handle. That is not, that is not a definition of like help to me. That's not helping. That's sacrificing the child. So, you know, someone can spend more time on their phone or just get a break. Like I know, I know it's gotta be a really hard situation, especially for these poor, you know, teachers and whatnot. But like, this is really speaking to a failure in our society to give kids what they need. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, we, I joke a lot. I call it the weird, like hippie school, but we send our kids to an alternative school. Like they do what's called a free democratic learning. They are allowed to like, it's kind of like Montessori, but they keep doing it as they get older. So they're allowed to like explore ideas and do what they want. And if they want to hang out outside all day, they can hang out outside all day and you know, we just see in those flaws of like tying kids into chairs for eight hours a day and then you can't figure out why your seven-year-old, you know, has attention deficit disorder because what seven-year-old wants to sit in a chair all day? (laughs) Yeah. That's the last thing any of them want to do. Especially when they go from such an extreme, right? If you're like, I mean, I guess first grade is what, about five years old. So you basically get five years to run around and just completely let your brain learn and absorb the world. And then one day you go from like, you get to run around for eight hours a day too. Now you have to sit for eight hours a day. As the second you go to first grade and suddenly this is supposed to be like work. I it's yeah. just, I don't know. I know you're not happy here. Take this. This will make you happy. Yeah, exactly. you know? right. Well, and, and you said something in there that really spoke to my experience with antidepressants, which is that they made the parts of life I don't really want to do slightly more tolerable. Mm-hmm. They didn't actually make me feel better, yeah. but they made like getting up and going to work five days a week for 40 hours feel a little more doable for me. But I guess the the question, and and I think the point you were raising when you spoke even earlier than that about the ways you had had to make adjustments and changes in your life is that if we can change the life we have created for ourselves, maybe we don't have to feel as bad about it. Whereas the other pieces, maybe I can take this medicine and just push through. And it's, it's not as easy of a call as it seems, right? Because Another piece of what we need is the acceptance and love of others. And if you don't live in a way that's in accordance with what the rest of the world looks like, sometimes that's harder to get. So it's almost like we're forced into this position of like, pick which need you want met. You know what I mean? A little bit. And I, I think that, you know, what can happen is, I mean, we, we kind of get programmed, right? As we basically from our, you know, time we're born to the time we go out into the world, we're programmed to, to on some level, like there's, there's bunch of ways this can look, but we're supposed to go out into the world and be productive members of society, which means we're supposed to get a traditional job that makes us a certain amount of money in order to live a certain way, right? Okay, there are, you know, millions of ways to express that and to do that, of course, but if we're feeling discontent, and I mean, the job is a very easy way to think about this. If we're feeling discontent in our job and we don't like it, and it's so miserable for us that we have to, we're depressed and therefore we get put on antidepressants in order to handle being able to go to our job. Well, again, I mean, this is basic, but maybe the problem is not you, it's your job. So maybe we need to change our job, right? And that's easier for some people to do than others. But what I don't like about this, you know, hair trigger medication is that it is 
doling our, 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 you know, our signal fires. We've all got that inside of us where it says like this person, this situation, this experience is not good for me. And that, that anxiety, that depression, that discontent is coming up to say something's wrong in your life. You got to fix this. You got to address it. But instead we've just conditioned everyone to think that we have a mental illness because I don't know, we don't like our whatever we don't like whatever i mean i had a i had an objectively great life on paper and i but it wasn't my, it wasn't for me i was living somebody else's life but i didn't realize that because i had spent so long on medication and had so so wrapped myself up in this idea that my identity was as a depressed person so therefore it didn't matter what i did I was going to be depressed so it didn't occur to me to change my situation because i had was so enmeshed in that identity and so I really, especially with young people, like that's your time to, that's your time to go out and say, I don't like this. I do like this. What do I want to do? And if we, we, we just numb the crap out of them, we rob them of that ability to get to know who they are and to create a life for themselves that actually brings them purpose and joy. Now, I will say it is a little scary as a, a parent. So I have a 20 year old and she's going through that, uh, I call it you know, the existential angst mm -hmm. of trying to figure out like what she want to do and where she want to go. And, and she's really kind of struggling with that. And mm -hmm. luckily my wife and I don't think medication is ever a great answer, but trying to help her navigate that and figure out like, what is a, a healthy amount of stress or a healthy amount of anxiety that's going to push her to do hard things? Because, you know, we, yeah. we're trying to keep her from stepping into that Go get a nine to five job that you can tolerate, you know, to make some money to to support yourself like that sucks. Like nobody yeah. wants to do that. Yeah. And so we're trying to keep her out of that framework yeah. <laughs> and trying to encourage her like maybe it's good to go through this difficult phase to figure out what you really want to do. Well, she's also building resilience like you. Right. I think the gift you are giving her is allowing her to build resilience and struggle. And we grow at the edges of our at the edges of our our limits right so what she's struggling with now i mean i i you know and i do think that it's important to note that there's there's a difference between you know kind of struggling and existential struggle and big c crisis right if you've got some active crisis situation where a kid is putting themselves or somebody else in danger we're not really talking about that that's a very different i think conversation to be had we're talking more about just like how do we learn to live? How do we learn to exist in this world? And the, the reality of this world is that in one body and in one mind, you're going to hold all that is beautiful and all that is awful all at the same time. And it's going to intermingle. And sometimes one's going to be louder than the other to learn that and to accept it and to let it flow in and out and to figure out when you feel the most open and when you feel the most closed and make choices based on that is part of how we learn to follow our inst our animal instinct and like exist in this world right mm. but we have so many things working against that that are kind of pulling us away from that instinct and so you know assuming we're not in big c crisis here i think that like it's a really big gift to let our kids struggle a little bit let them learn let them fall down and realize okay maybe i shouldn't run full speed into the tree that's that's how i get hurt right <laughs> let them run into the tree so they don't do it again you know metaphorically obviously there are boundaries that need to be you know to keep people safe but oh, we're just missing that, I think.
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So for you, in the book you describe, you were put on antidepressants at 14. 15. Uh, but 15, after your dad passed away, which yeah. seems like a normal kind of crisis thing for a kid to go through. Um, how long like, did you see like a therapist or were there other options available before medication was thrown at you? Like, was it pretty quick or was it? Well, the first thing was it was a different time. It was 2001 and I was in Reno, in Reno now, but I was also there at the time and I mean, I don't even know. I, I was taken to a child psychologist first. I don't even know if there was more than one in town. For all I know, she was the only one. She wasn't very good. She was, you know, a very kind of in a box by the book. Like, I, I kind of got the sense that, you know, if you said the right things, you could get whatever diagnosis you want. And and then also she she kind of broke my trust really early on. And it just it just wasn't a good situation. So I, you know, kind of showed up because I was forced there for a few, you know, maybe six weeks or something. And then she called my mom up and said that because of HIPAA, she wasn't allowed to tell my mom what was going on, but that she was diagnosing an anxiety and depressive disorder and that my mother was wasting her time with therapy when what I really needed was a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here's my mom. She's grieving too. She just lost her husband we're only a family of three. So it's not like she had anyone to bounce my situation off of. So she did what I think all parents do and followed the advice of someone who's supposed to know more. Right. And so I ended up at the psychiatrist's office and, you know, I had a few appointments where we kind of messed medication, messed with medications until we found something that didn't create a really obvious set of side effects. Because the first couple of drugs I tried, it was like instant, like, you know, I'm so nauseous, I'm throwing up or falling asleep in class. Like it was very clearly not a physical fit. And then we found the combination that didn't create those side effects. And then it was pretty much just like, okay, come back. If you want to change anything, it's suddenly like, you know, they dropped a whole bunch of drugs and, you know, a lifelong medication plan in the lap of a 15 year old said, well, you're, you're basically too They basically told me that like with action that I wasn't capable of getting through this process on my own like of grieving and going through real trauma and that I, you know, didn't have the strength. And so here's chemical intervention. You're going to need it for the rest of your life. Like, good luck. That's basically the, that was the message. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't have any psychiatrist for the rest of my, for the rest wow. of my uh, medication career <laughs> who even ever questioned it. So. And of course we're in a small rural area in Maryland. We have a yeah. severe lack of mental health mm -hmm. 
outlets available, <laughs> mental yeah. health resources. So it's sort of similar, right? I mean, like, it's not like anyone said, okay, maybe we need to find a different therapist. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's just because the time was different. I don't know if it was because because there wasn't another child psychologist in town. I, I really don't know. And I, I, I see how, I know how fast this can happen because it happened to me. I mean, it just like, you just kind of get into the system and then you get shuttled around and then they say, try this. And they tell you there won't be any major side effects and you just do what they say. That's you that, don't yeah. realize and, what's going on until later if you're lucky. And and antidepressants are uh, spoken about at least, if not quote unquote sold like that. You know, they're, they're not very harmful. There's not much that could go wrong. So just try it out and see if it helps. And you know, it, it's interesting, especially with all the people who had such backlash about like the COVID vaccines and they're new and we don't know what's in them and this, that, and the other. Professionals don't know why antidepressants work. So no, maybe that should clue us in no. to be a little confused about giving them to ourselves. Like, oh, how do they work? Uh, well, we're not really sure. They just do some stuff up in your yeah. brain. Like, that's crazy. Well, there, yeah, li there's literally, no, they don't have any idea how they work. They have guesses. And then beyond that, there's not a single long-term study documenting the long-term effects of this and like I think that's the stuff the kind of stuff that's that scares me and it's just like look there is evidence suggesting that in about 15 percent of patients with severe issues like severe depression antidepressants can have an alleviating effect mm -hmm. at least in the short to medium term that's really the only positive data we have and that's independent that's data that's been independently analyzed you know it's not the stuff that's coming out directly from the pharmaceutical companies but beyond that so that what does that mean 85 percent of people who are on these drugs are either not having any positive reaction or they're having a negative reaction and but we what we do know is that at least 50 percent of people have withdrawal effects coming off of them so we we have no idea how they work we don't know we know that they're not particularly effective for the majority of people, but we are sure that at least half people can have a really hard time coming off of them and have some long-term severe withdrawal effects. So to me, that math doesn't really work out. I mean, there's also plenty of evidence about the placebo effect when it comes to antidepressants that a sugar pill is just as effective. Meditation is just as effective, like kind of in one-to-one -one blind studies. So, you know, maybe there's a use case for them, but I'm... I'm quite convinced it's certainly not at the rate we're prescribing them and to the amount yeah. of people we're prescribing them. I don't believe that a third of the people in this country have mental illness. I don't buy it. I think a third of us at least got something. I don't know if it's mental illness. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say like a third, at least a third of the people. I mean, how many, I mean, like people are deeply unhappy, right? But being unhappy, well, yeah. being unhappy and discontent because you're living in a world that is not supporting you as a both like a spiritual being and an animal because <laughs> we're animals is not a mental illness that's putting a koala in the ocean and wondering why the koala is dying well yeah but this all kind of goes back to this thing i was getting ready to bring up anyway so that's perfect so billy billy tends to when we talk about things like medication he likes to skew to the side of i would prefer to change my life if possible to a healthier lifestyle and avoid the medication I respect it. I totally, on a theory level, agree with him, but in practice, I've found that that doesn't always work for me. But it's this idea of like, I do think in general, yeah, if we could adjust our life to feel better, that's probably better than just trying to, you know, as we talked about, take this medicine and sort of force ourselves to tolerate or be okay with the situation. Mm -hmm. um, 
But even more so, like that's hard enough for myself. But as a parent, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, you mean I need to change my life for my kid to act right? Like that's an even harder sell almost. But then on a societal level, like you're talking about, in order for us to shift and have that paradigm shift as a society to go from, oh, these are mental illnesses to, oh, these are the ways that our actual way of being in our society just makes us unhappy and sick. <laughs> That requires a big shift, and I don't think we're ready to take it on. So we can just keep calling it mental health, and we can keep giving people some pills. Like you know what I mean? Like we're not going to ready to take that shift. Money too. The other one doesn't. So exactly, (laughs) working less than forty hours a week doesn't make people money, but it would make us all less depressed. Yeah, I you know I think that that's where I I keep coming back to. um, These drugs aren't going anywhere anytime soon. A lot of people ask me like, "Are you you anti these drugs? Should they be banned?" (laughs) And I'm just like, it doesn't even matter. It's not even a relevant, productive way to have this conversation because they are not going away anytime soon. I would love to see them more regulated, more like a controlled substance. I would love to see more um, legislation around dosages so there can be a greater variety of dosages for people to be able to properly step down and taper so we're not jumping from like 25 milligrams to 400, you know, in a month and then having to drop someone from 400 milligrams to zero because they can't you know properly taper down so like i would like to see changes in the way these drugs are dispensed regulated and uh the education around them but they're not going away so knowing that right and and like neither is our societal problems and you know social media is not going to disappear even though we know it's terrible for us like none of that is going to change so what this whole experience mental illness or depression or whatever we want to call it is asking us to do is to turn inward and figure out how to turn off the noise for our own individuals in the life we live and make changes within the control that we have in order to better live and create a life that speaks better to our soul. I really believe that we're all here to do something specific and that we have on some level chosen the lessons that we're going to learn. So whatever situation we're in, if we're a parent or we're not a parent or we live in a city or the you know farm, whatever it is, that there's there's something for us there that we are trying to experience and learn. But life comes in and it's, you know, it's like a game. It's gonna throw obstacles and diversions at you because it's it's trying to get you to listen and not get distracted by that so you can write yourself. So I almost don't really like I, you know, my work is all about advocacy. And I, I think it's important to point out that our society is, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can swear I was going to use a bad word. there. Yes, yes, yeah, you can. <laughs> that like we're fucked, right? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck us up with the cuss words, please. Yes. <laughs> um, we live in a fucked up world. But that doesn't mean you have to accept that as your world, because we each live in our own individual there's there's you know how many billions of people are there eight billions there's eight billion truths right so mine is not going to be any of yours but i know that i can take control of my world and live a lot happier if i control what i consume you know if i don't like i don't get on twitter because it's bad for me (laughs) right i don't have to i don't so i don't have to care what twitter's doing i just don't get on it because it's bad for me And I know that maybe it's not bad for somebody else, but it's these little choices where you might think you're like, you know, make doing some crazy counter thing, but there's, there's your people are out there and it just gets a lot easier when you start making these decisions and you start realizing that nobody gives a shit what you do. It's great. Part of what you were talking about earlier, like, um, 
working with some people around the time that you decided to get off the the antidepressants and you know the 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 help you received along the way i I think that's just such a crucial and necessary part right the correlation between these depression and anxiety feelings and then also like our core beliefs about ourselves mm-hmm. that we've picked up along the way is high, mm-hmm. you know. And so in order to change this way of being, uh, of feeling bad or make these changes that it would take for that feeling or that message to change, you got to go against what you already believe, right? Like yeah. I can't trust that there's going to be two or three people that accept and love me when I already assume everybody hates me. And it's only because I'm doing these people pleasing actions that they stay around, right? Like, so I do need that help, that outside perspective, because mine is a little twisted. Yeah. So there's um, a woman named Martha Beck, who's pretty fabulous. And she, um, from what I understand about her story, I might be getting the details a little wrong, but the, the theory is, you know, what matters here. She's, she's probably in her, you know, late 60s, 70s at this point. And she had some sort of, um, she was in academia and she had some sort of very like severe illness, like autoimmune illness that was killing her. And she realized that Part of why this kept flaring up was because the amount of stress she was under and the amount of things she was trying to do to please other people, whether or not that was performing in academia, or I think she was part of some church and like living in these, you know, very churchly values, whatever it was, she was, she just realized, okay, this is, this is not working for me. And this is literally going to kill me if I don't change my life. So what she did, and this was before smartphones, so she got a watch and she set an alarm. And I believe every half hour she set an alarm to go off. And when that alarm went off on her watch, when it beeped, she asked herself the question, am I lying right now? And what that meant was, am I lying? Like, am I I talking to someone I don't want to be talking to? Am I engaging in an activity I don't want to be doing? And if she said that, yes, I am lying, you know, like I am having coffee with someone because I feel obligated to do it, but I don't really want to be here. She extricated herself from the situation. She said, nope, not going to do this. And she said she lost almost every friend and and support system that she had with the exception of like one or two people. But she completely cured her physical self and gained back her mental and emotional control. And it taught her to create, it taught her about the life that she was actually meant to live. And now she's like Oprah's guru or something. So (laughs) this is, this is a really extreme example that probably a lot of us, you know, don't need to, or unwilling to do, but it also kind of highlights just, you know, all the kind of unwritten social constraints that we have about, you know, being obligated to say yes to things we don't want to do. And especially women being afraid to say no and always being the caregivers and never really, you know, stopping to see like how this giving, giving, giving is affecting you, you know, physically and emotionally. But I love this idea. And I think about this a lot um, with Martha Beck to a point where like, I, I very often think before I commit to something, like, am I, am I lying if I do this? Mm-hmm. And it, it starts to make your boundaries really clear. You definitely, um, you know, are at risk of pissing people off. But then when you then take another step, it's like, well, why like why does it matter if someone doesn't like me because like again they they don't care they'll think about it for two for two seconds and then move on and be consumed with their own bullshit because that's how we all are when you start to think this way it's so free (laughs) and and maybe the question isn't like why are we so consumed about how other people are going to feel by it but just why aren't we more consumed with how we feel about it well like it's cool that we care but why can't we care about ourselves first well, I would say because we have like, you know, probably some deep wounding and trauma that we have to oh, work through. Absolutely. I mean, like if we're going to really dig into there, it's because, 
you know, Sally made fun of us in first grade on the playground. And ever since then, we felt inadequate and like we could never fit in with the cool kids. Right. I mean, like that. And that's how kids work. You get these little I mean, sometimes they're, you know, big T traumas that happen to kids. But there are also these little things that just kind of wire the way our brain is. And I think that when we have this resistance, you know, when we have this question of okay, why does the situation make me feel uncomfortable or why am I getting anxious about it? that's that's a map that's a map to something to work on because when we're fully healed when we're not triggered by anything we don't care right mm -hmm. like you know like you know the you for example i mean we've got content warnings now on things but if you're not someone who's maybe experienced that you don't need that right it doesn't trigger you because you haven't been through it and the same can happen where if you have been triggered by something but you heal that wound it also doesn't rile you up anymore so it's all just a, like i said it's a signal fire and when we dull that we don't actually do the work we need to do you, you talking about that story about the lady who you know changed her life um and this idea of like changing our core beliefs changing our emotional state which somehow alters our actual physiology and can heal us um you'll have to forgive me for this but there's a really good book about that out right now and i feel bad talking about because we're talking about your book but the myth, <laughs> the of, myth normal of normal by gabor mate is yes. incredible yes. Uh, and if you want to know more about oh, that right here uh, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that is that is an incredible book um and another it, it reminded me of another story that in behavioral psychology, going back to like, I think it was the 1930s, there was a, a young lady who was born without pain sensors in her body. Oh, yeah. That's right. And, and the understanding from that, that pain is a message because this young lady, unfortunately, hurt herself pretty frequently. Yeah. Obviously, she didn't feel it. But because she couldn't feel it, she didn't know that the message was yep. take your hand off the hot stove. Right. And I would say it's very similar in my mind, at least my belief of the world that this depression, anxiety, all these things are the same. They're mm -hmm. messages, right? And if you just remove them with the medicine, you're not really helping. But I do feel like this medicine is about the the withdrawal more, maybe. Well, so my maybe my book is really about the, the antidepressant book. withdrawal because I mean, I yeah. talk, we've talked a lot about my general feelings on you know medicating normal, if you will. But you know, my big work and my advocacy is kind of in the framework of okay, this is the stuff isn't going away, um, but not everybody wants to be on them forever. So for people who don't want to be on these drugs forever, how do we take them off safely? Because we have not been taking them off safely so far and <laughs> it creates you know a huge wave of, it can create a huge wave of both physical and cognitive and emotional side effects that is very often mistaken for the onset of another psychiatric illness or people think they're relapsing when in reality their their entire body is trying to recalibrate from these drugs and you know so that's what my story is about it's about the year i spent in antidepressant withdrawal it's very little about you know why i got on them and you know, it's it's not about that at all. So you had kind of, I would say, got some bad advice when you went to a psychiatrist about coming off the medications and had basically said, oh, yeah, just pick this one and go off cold yeah. turkey. Um, And that obviously is not the right way <laughs> to go through uh, antidepressant withdrawal. So is there like a, a, I don't know, a best practice for that or what people should do if they're considering going off the medication? Well, so it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky subject. So in um in my book, you know, and I talk about it. So I was on one of the drugs I was on is called Effexor XR, 
and it is a very short half-life, which means that it doesn't stay in the body for very long. And so it, it works fast and it stops working fast. And what happens with a drug with a short half-life is that you're more likely to have intense withdrawal effects because suddenly the brain is like missing. It's, it's, it's adapted to sucking up all the molecules in this drugs. And then if you don't, if you miss a dose one day, it tries to operate as if that drug is going to be there and it's not there. And it, the, the brain just goes haywire. And therefore all these withdrawal effects happen too. A dr drugs with longer half-lives like uh, Prozac, for example, stays in the body a lot longer. So the theory is, I mean, there are plenty of people who have difficulty getting off of Prozac, but the theory is that because it almost like titrates through your system more slowly, the brain and body can kind of adjust as you lower dosages or stop dosages. So that's that's some background info. The other tricky part about it is that, you know, when I when this happened to me in 2016, um, at the time I was on 37.5 milligrams of Effexor XR, which is the smallest dose you can get on the market. So from my psychiatrist perspective, she couldn't prescribe a smaller dose, like 20 milligrams or 10 for me to step down because you literally couldn't get that from a pharmacy. So it's bad advice in retrospect. It may have been bad advice at the time because she just wasn't particularly well educated in general, but it's not like there was a ton of data out there to suggest that this was the, the overwhelming assumption at the time was like, this is a therapeutic dose is the word they like to use. So you'll be able to step off of it. But we now know that that's not true, that the most difficult part of withdrawal for people is usually going from some amount of drug to no amount of drug. So even if you taper down really slowly from like 150 milligrams to five milligrams, for a lot of people that five to zero is still the hardest part, even if they've tapered, right? And the research around this, the, the leading research at the time, um, it's called hyperbolic taper or leading, sorry, the leading research at this time is... Um, the theory is called hyperbolic tapering, which is that if you if you cut down the amount of medication and it starts in a steep curve and then it flattens out in a hyperbolic curve, you basically step down by a smaller and smaller amount each time. So the brain has time to adjust. So conventional wisdom would say, okay, you're going to go from 75 milligrams for two weeks, then to 50, then to 25, and then you stop. But that doesn't work for a lot of people <laughs> like me. They have really, really bad withdrawal effects. And that's when they think they're insane and need to go back on the drugs. Some people get committed. People commit suicide. It's really terrible. So now we know that, okay, for a lot of people, it can work. Instead of going from 50, you go from like 50, you, you take 10% of that to 50. So 10% of 50 is five. So you go to like 45 milligrams. And then the next time when you're ready to taper, you take 10% of 45. So now we have to take it down by 4.5, which means if I get the math right, we're at 41.5 <laughs> the next oh, time. Sorry, 40.5. 40.5, yeah. <laughs> See, told you. It's going to get worse, right? So then the yeah. next time we have to take it down by 4.5 and then we start getting into math that like I'm not even going to try and do in my head. <laughs> but as you can see, it gets smaller and smaller and yeah. smaller. So the tricky part here is that you can't, like I said, you can't get that from a pharmacy, right? So what do we do? First, you need to have a psychiatrist or prescriber who's actually educated in this type of withdrawal and this type of tapering, who knows how to create a plan for their patient. Then if you're lucky, you live in a place that's big enough that has a compound pharmacy that can say, okay, like you take your effects or whatever, they're going to actually measure it, weigh it out, give you capsules that are 40.5 or, you know, 17.5, whatever you've got, or when we get down there, eight milligrams, right? 
So you have a compound pharmacy that can handle that. And then once you get even further, some people even need to get their drugs titrated down into grams, like, or, or like micrograms, single micrograms that they have to administer with an eyedropper suspended in liquid, mm. because that's the level that their body can handle. So you really need a professional to do that, but not everybody lives in a place of the compound pharmacy and not everybody has the financial ability to go through a compound pharmacy. So then you have these people who are at home basically being their own like pharmacists, their own drug pushers. They're sitting there with tweezers and razor blades and, you know, uh, microgram scales measuring out their own drugs. And it's huge time suck. The rate of, you know, mistakes is really high. You can also run into problems where people don't understand that, you know, some drugs can be cut in half, others can't. And if you might break the chemical chains that affect the release of the drug, if you just take one pill and cut it in half, you just, so people kind of play with fire a little bit, but it's the only thing they can do because they know they can't just stop taking these drugs. Then on top of that, what's even more frustrating is that we don't know why some people need to go through this really extreme process and other people can just stop and have no problems. So you're basically kind of, you know, in this almost like, you know, you're just kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do you want to take the gamble and just say, I'm going to try going it step down, like go from 37.5 to nothing like I did and hope you're one of the people that has no problem. Or do you want to go through what could be years long taper just in case you're not one of those people and you're trying to avoid it. And then you just don't know. And it's just, we don't, there's no real research on this yet. I hope that people start researching it, but the prevailing wisdom, all that to say is that if you're going to avoid hopefully what I went through, then it's probably going to be safer for you. If you do a pro a, a um, hyperbolic type tapering, but that doesn't work for everyone either. So yeah. Are we getting more psychiatrists that under, so my experience with knowing people that have been on any kind of antidepressants is it's always seemed like a, I don't know if roulette wheel is the right way, but it's like they'll try one for a couple weeks or a couple yeah. months and it might work for a little while and then it stops. So then we try something else and we up or down the percentages mm-hmm. and we add another one in. Like, are there more yeah. doctors that are getting more experience with how to bring people off of them safely or how to adjust these medications safely? <laughs> I have to believe that there's more education on it than there was five, 10 years ago, but I don't think think we're anywhere near the critical mass of, of what needs to be out there. I, I, it's still really common for people to be in situations, just like you said, where people are getting like shifted around on different drugs constantly. But if you think about that, then like, for example, so for me, what happened was when I was told to stop taking my effects or after at about six days in, I started having extremely violent, intrusive thoughts that had I gone back to my psychiatrist and told her what was going on, I probably would have been put on an involuntary psychiatric hold. And then I would have been put in a psychiatric hospital where they would have pumped me up with a whole bunch of more drugs and probably given me a diagnosis of either bipolar or schizophrenia. Um, And that's not what was going on. Right. And then I would have had, you know, another cocktail of drugs to get off of. And I probably would have thought that I was this really incredibly sick person. And then you just end up in the system and people get really, really, really deeply hurt by that sort of thing. When in reality, all that was happening was that I was withdrawing from this medication, right? So if if you think about that, like, granted, I had been on these drugs for so long and, you know, the evidence does seem to point to the fact that the longer you've been on these drugs, the more likely you are to have withdrawal symptoms. 
But even so, if you're someone who's just kind of shuffling around like once a year, you could be having withdrawal symptoms from one drug that then prompt your prescriber to put you on another drug. And so you, but you think that you're sick, right? You think that it's your, it's your, it's your, there's something wrong with you or that you've got a mental illness, but it's literally just switching the drugs around. So I, 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 I get really worried when people say, you know, I saw a new psychiatrist and they put me on something and I was feeling, you know, a little better, a little numbed out. So they decided to raise it and it wasn't quite right. So then they added another one. And it just, for me, I just, I, it, you, you cannot play roulette with this stuff. It is not a candy bowl. So my experience, and actually, Brooke, I, I do want to have you at, at some point because you were talking about making big life changes, right? And mm-hmm. I think in the book, you talked about a really big life change that you made. And you mm-hmm. also talked about, you know, um, a, a specific practitioner who who really helped you during that time. Mm-hmm. And I definitely want to hear about both of those things. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because my experience as um, a juvenile really mirrors yours. Mm-hmm. Um, but then my experience as an adult has has kind of deviated. So. I was first put on psych meds at the age of 16, mm-hmm. um, also in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm probably like just a year or two older than you maybe. But uh, and I was misdiagnosed. I, I also was, you know, using drugs pretty heavily by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at that point was diagnosed as bipolar disorder, which I'm, I'm certainly not. You know, mm-hmm. I've had my entire life. I mean, my entire adult life now to test the theory of do yeah. I have bipolar <laughs> disorder? And I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is scary to know that you know, in my circumstances, like these practitioners knew I was using drugs and mm-hmm. still decided that like it yep. was safe to diagnose me with a mental disorder with mm-hmm. while I was actively using illegal substances. Yeah. Uh, all that to say, though, so like for there was a period of time where I wasn't probably taking the drugs when I was when I was really using, but I got clean at the age of 20 and went back on the drugs at that point um, and had solidly been on an antidepressant for 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you were on one consistently or mm-hmm. were you different ones? Yeah, no, I was on. So I was very one. much of, you know, I got uh, Wellbutrin. Yeah. So too. I had been on Wellbutrin when I was younger. I mm-hmm. came, definitely went back on it as soon as I got clean at the age of 20. And I stayed on it until probably, I want to say just 34, 35. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of of this approach of like, if it ain't broke, don't, broke, fix, don't it. fix it. Yeah. Me too, I didn't for a very know. long time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that I actually necessarily really needed it, but like it wasn't I wasn't having side effects from being on it. It wasn't causing problems in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I, I had a therapist who was saying to me, you know, at this point, like it's probably not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been on it so long. And we you know what she told me, which I, I don't know, I, you know, I didn't validate this, but um, is that these drugs aren't necessarily really known to to work for that long. Like yeah. eventually. Can I say something about yeah, that too? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I, and I found this interesting when you were talking earlier, Brooke, about this idea that your psychiatrist, as a as a youth, told you you'd have to be on it forever. And like, if you talk to my primary care doctor, who's also a professional, he says generally like six to nine months is their lifespan, and then you just need to get off of them because they kind of numb you out and don't stop working. Yeah, I think that's. Like, I yeah, think even our professional information is like not up to date across profession. Well, yeah, some of that is that a different time. Like we're talking, you know, mm-hmm. 2001 versus versus more 
common knowledge of now knowing that I, I believe the max of efficacy is about two years. And after that, it really falls off. But really, it's six to nine months is, is um, a better way to think about it. They're really short-term use drugs. And this is this is very true for Xanax and, you know, all your benzos and anti-anxiety panic attack right. wellers. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot you off camera. Yeah, I just thought that was relevant. No, no, it's okay. So I did decide to come off the Wellbutrin at that point, And I did, I, it was my primary care who had been mm-hmm. prescribing it to me for years. And I spoke with him and he did taper me down. And I had no side effects from that. I was very fortunate um, when I came off that. Now, I then, ironically, I chose to come off that medication while my husband was, was in the middle of, of a relapse, mm-hmm. um, which then probably six months later got, got very, very bad. Um, and I was probably at that point I was at, you know, I had 14, 15 years clean. I was at the closest mm-hmm. to relapse that I had been mm-hmm. in probably 10 years. And um, at that point, my doctor put me, you know, I went to my doctor and I said, I'm just really, really struggling. And he put me on Lexapro. Why did he put you on Lexapro instead of back on Wellbutrin? I don't know. And, and so one thing about me is that my memory is terrible. So I can't say that, um, that I, my not knowing does not mean that we did not have that conversation. Right. Yeah. It just means that I don't remember yeah, fair enough. what that conversation may have been, but that was a decision. So that helped. It, it definitely helped. My husband ended up passing away. I'm sorry. Thank you. About seven or eight months later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was still on the Lexapro at that point, <sighs> maybe three three or so weeks after he passed away, I just had gotten to this point where I just felt like you should be sad when someone dies. Mm-hmm. But like, I was just like this, like low level base mm-hmm. sad. Like I had like yeah. no, I had no ups and downs. And yeah. to me, that was reading very like depression. And so at that point, you put me back on the Wellbutrin. So then I was on Lexapro. I was on the Wellbutrin. It did help. Mm-hmm. Um, this past summer, I decided, decided to try to come off the Lexapro. Mm-hmm. So I did have some withdrawal when I did that. I did a taper. I think I did that one myself. I don't think I even spoke to my doctor. But, uh, you know, when I compare that to your experience, which was, mm-hmm. you know, much more extreme, I I dealt with some dizziness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, my experience has, has been, um, you know, that these medications, now whether they helped me or hurt me when I was 16 years old, mm-hmm. Who knows, right? Yeah. A lot of variables there. Really yeah. hard to say whether they, you know, I was on lithium at one point. I was on Depo. I, you know, I was they they had me on a bunch of stuff. And but I do know in my adulthood there there were very very tough times in my life where going on the antidepressant helped me get through those times. And I have been very fortunate that I've been able to come off with very minimal mm-hmm. side effects. But one thing that so one thing that struck me is so right now I'm I'm in a point in my life where I I am struggling. I lost my job in December. Um, it's 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 been a little bit of a tough time, right? And so it you know your book really resonated with me as I so I listened to it on Audible. I signed up for our Audible free trial, plug in that um, to actually specifically to get access to your book, Brooke, because I knew you were coming on and I wanted to, you know, I love memoirs anyway, but this really appealed to me. And uh, so one thing that really stood out to me was this major change that you decided Mm -hmm. to make, um, which I think, you know, my understanding was you, you were struggling, you were unhappy your life was not the way you wanted it to be. And it was really, you decided to make this change first. And then as a result of the, mm-hmm. the change coming up, it was, that was what kind of gave you the push to, right. to remove yourself from, from these medications. Um, but just 
how ballsy that was. And so maybe let me shut up and let you talk about that. Um, and because I don't want to tell your story for you. But just yeah, it was really mind blowing to me that you that you did this. Well, I, I just before I get into that, I, I think it's just important to note with your story as well, that it, it sounds like you had a prescriber or have a prescriber who's connected and at least reasonably well educated based on what you've talked talked about and really seems to care about you as a patient. And so the fact that you two together have created, you know, a plan that works for you today. And I think that that's the important part is that like what we, what works for us today may not work for us in six months or a year. And we need, we need to have, understand our own accountability for that. And also the people who we, if we put our health in our doctor's hands, they really need to un- understand that too. I mean, the big failure, I think for, for me is maybe not even that I was put on these drugs at 15. It was the fact that then for the next 15 years, not a single one of my doctor ever or, or, or um, pharmacist ever questioned the length of time, the amount of drugs I was on and whether or not they were still necessary for someone, especially for someone who was a literal child at the time. Right. So like you said, these are very complex and um, highly variable situations. So I I did want to acknowledge that, but as far as, you know, what happened to me and the big changes in life. And I think that there's very few scenarios in which people are, you know, deeply depressed and don't need to make a really big change. But the problem is that probably the more depressed you are, the bigger the change, which is a bit of an inverse reaction to what we want, right? We tell people who are depressed to make little changes when what they probably need is a big, big change. So for me, I was living in New York City. I owned a bakery with a with a co-founder uh, in the Lower East Side. And, you know, I was very, I was depressed. I was, I was having suicidal ideation and I just, it just occurred to me that this wasn't, something was wrong with my life. But then what also happened is, and this is rare and weird. And I acknowledge that, um, I got this random opportunity to travel around the world for a year. So I basically had blindly applied to this Facebook ad I had seen that for a company that was basically doing a pilot program of taking people who could work remotely, which I couldn't do. To be fair, I was just just want trying to do anything to change my situation. Um, and I never thought I'd get chosen. And I got, but I did, I got chosen to participate and it was me. And we started off with 70 other people and they put us all in one plane and they dropped us all in Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia in one apartment building. And then they moved us around to a different country every month for a year. And the group got smaller and smaller as the year was went on. And um, it was a big social experiment, effectively. And when I got told I was chosen to be a part of this, I, I just had this realization that my life cannot be the same if I do this. I have to, I wasn't particularly excited. I mean, I was in, I was so deep, you know, stuck into my own depression and um, kind of story that I had no excitement. I didn't feel special. It felt quite, quite like a burden. I didn't really have the energy to do it, but I had enough inner, inner intuition and strength, I guess, to say that my life will not be the same and my life needs to not be the same. So I said, better, worse, doesn't matter. It just needs to be different. So I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And what that required me to do was, you know, once I booked my flight, like then I had to, I had to address my business partner and all the issues we had had over the five years we were working together, which was a big, well, 
is what I thought was a huge source of my upset. Um, and that sucked. I mean, like we don't talk to this day. It was a very rough relationship and I had to completely like sell and abandon this thing that I had created. And that was extremely painful. I had to leave New York city and get rid of my apartment. And I had a dog who I had to rehome, which still kind of breaks my heart, but she was in a better situation. But like, I literally shed everything about my life in order to take this opportunity. And then when I decided I was going to do that, well, then two things happened. One is I realized that logistically I was not going to be able to get these drugs all around the world reliably. And I didn't want to be, you know, in the middle of Bosnia, not having the drugs I needed because I knew that wouldn't go well. So that was one reason why I was like, okay, I have to try and get off of them and find my baseline before I get on this plane. And then the other reason was like you, Caroline, and is I was having a lot of memory problems and uh, I was not remembering conversations between me and my business partner, which is part of why we fought a lot. But then also my mom might have conversations with her and she would, I, I, I just wouldn't register. And I was starting to hypothesize that it had something to do with all the psych drugs I'd been on because memory loss is a side effect of that. And so I didn't want to go on this trip and literally not remember any of it. So that was another motivation I had to get off these drugs. And my memory has gotten a lot better since, since I got off all those drugs. Um, but yeah, so that's was, super interesting. I had not heard that before. Yeah, and wow. <laughs> that's the first thing that I came to mind when you said that is I was like, this tracks, I mean, yeah, that, we, that definitely resonates. I mean, it, it, we never it definitely know, makes me think. Yeah, for sure. For we sure. never know. Yeah. But I mean, these are, you know, they impair our cognitive ability and they, they, they numb us. So I don't know whether or not it's like, I don't know enough about the research to even know if it's like, okay, there's literally an inability to form memories or if it's more that just that I wasn't really home. Like I never mm -hmm. felt home in my body in my experience. Right. So I was always in a daydream. So just like, I wasn't listening very well. So I don't know, little column A, little column B, but. Not, not sure everybody's we're over an hour. So if you got another good question or two that you definitely want to ask before we end, this would be the time for that. So I do have another one. I, I would love to hear, um, Brooke, you just kind of summarize your work with, was it Alan? Am I getting his name yeah. right? Alan. Yeah. Yeah. If you could just kind of summarize, um, you know, that, that relationship for you and, and his approach and, and what that brought to your process. Okay. So this kind of ties into the memory loss. So I had really struggled um, with traditional talk therapy or, you know, especially cognitive behavioral therapy, which made, make, made and makes no sense to me. I know a lot. It's really great for very like logical people <laughs> for people who you know are able to think in that kind of like mathematical logical way and 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 find that comfort in that rationality doesn't work for someone at least for me who one is not like because I had so many memory problems and memory loss associated with the traumatic things that had happened to me and then the past you know the times that I was medicated it became really really difficult to have traditional talk therapy um or uh, CBT, anything where like I had to, you know, do the kind of classic, you know, let's go back to your childhood. Can you tell me the first time you felt like this? Right. That really, I really struggled with that because I have no memory. I mean, like if we talk about the years when my dad died, like I, 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 I don't connect to it in a way that's almost like, like it's, it's like my emotional memory is disconnected from it too. Like I've since processed the grief of losing him, but I really cannot 
remember what it felt like to be 15 or 16 and going through this. I have no no emotional connection to it. So that makes it really hard to work through, right? And we talk about working through your trauma and healing healing your shit, right? Well, how do you do that if you cannot connect emotionally to that part of your experience because your brain shut it down because it was too painful, right? So I really struggled with traditional therapy. And then, but when I got off these drugs and my withdrawal was so bad that I realized that not only did I have to deal with the withdrawal symptoms, but I also really needed to deal with like all of the stuff that had happened to me. Um, I got, my mom actually had listened to this guy on the radio, on this radio program, or maybe it was a podcast. And she, you know, mentioned him to me and he's, he's kind of more of almost like a spiritual counselor that I would say sort of blends Eastern and Western modalities together. So it kind of had a little bit of like a, I mean, spiritual is the best word. I know that can bring up a lot of like woo stuff for people, but what it, what his method allowed me to do was use metaphors and images that would come to my mind, even if they made no sense in reality and basically just use that as the message. So for example, um, in the book, I talk about like there was, I had a lot of images where we would be working together and the image would come up of being like abandoned in a desert when like my tribe had left me and starving and dying in a desert. And I've never been starving and dying in a desert before. So like, you know, what is this? Right. I mean, we could, we could say it's a thousand things. It could either be, you know, some people might say this is a past life. Some people might say this is, you know, a metaphor. Other people might say it's almost like a daydream like state where your brain is just collecting something that makes sense, but it doesn't, it didn't seem to matter because the way we used it is we said, okay, this is the imagery that's coming in. We are going to we are going to approach this, you know, image of this, of this person who was dying in the desert. And we are going to use that as our messenger. And through this kind of radical self-compassion and compassion towards this, this, this projection, this ghost that seemed to be within me, we basically like, instead of working with me as the wounded person, we worked with the, the image of this person in the desert. And we, through these, um, verbal exercises, we would actually get to a point where the image in my head, you know, where the woman, you know, she either fully died and like became part of the earth and it was a completion or maybe in another scenario, the image would heal, you know, whatever it was is we, we just, he met me where I was and said, okay, well, this is what's coming up for you. This completely bizarro image that makes no sense in the real world. We're going to work with that. And we're going to use compassion to heal it and heal you. And it was all done over the phone remotely. And it was extremely, extremely powerful. So the lesson to take from that is just that there are oddball tools out in the world that can be a little hard to find, but that I think, you know, the key for people is to find the tool that works for them. And, you know, for one person that might be yoga or, you know, transcendental meditation for somebody else that might be CBT. And for somebody else, it's going to be what's called, what's called compassion key for me. Um, but that if we kind of stick to the box of the thing, you know, if we think our only option is, you know, better help or some, you know, things that our insurance covers, well, then we're really cutting a lot of stuff off and it, you know, especially for kids, you know, it could be a pastor, it could be a coach. There's, you just have to find the right outlet that works for you. So I'm not sure if that, it's a really difficult thing to explain verbally. Um, buy, buy my book, read my book. It's much clearer. <laughs> Did you have any other questions, Billy? Uh, not. <laughs> okay. No, I, I definitely wanted to point out like um, <clears throat> one of the things that 
really disturbs me that I've never actually thought about before is nobody tells you you're going to have withdrawal symptoms when they put you on this medicine. No. There's like no nobody was like, oh, hey, this could help you, but just be aware, like you could have some withdrawal symptoms afterwards. Yeah. That could be a problem. Yeah. Like that bothers me because we, we are so like weird about that with everything else. Right. Yeah. Um, but I also want to make the case that like these medicines have helped people right? Whether that's for a short amount of time, whether that's for the person who it works for for two years, whatever. I don't want people to get the message of like, these are bad or wrong or don't do them if you really need them or somebody's telling you you need them. It's just more like, hey, there's another side to this story and make sure you're getting all the information before you choose to take this path that, you know, could theoretically help you for a time, but also comes with these factors that are scary. Yeah. And then even if like, even if you do get withdrawal, withdrawal symptoms, I mean, it just helps to know what they are and to identify them as withdrawal as opposed to as opposed to the onset of another mental illness or you know a, a relapse so um i mean the general the general data around it is that for people who try and get off of these drugs antidepressants um about 50% of them will have some withdrawal symptoms 50% won't of the 50% that has withdrawal symptoms about half of those are deemed severe. So about 25% of people who are on these drugs for a long time are likely to have severe withdrawal symptoms, kind of like I did. And, 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 you know, there are other things that can happen, but the bottom line is that just knowing that is hugely powerful and making sure that your doctor is withdrawal informed and trauma informed is also really, really, really powerful. And I think a lot of, you know, heartache is, can be avoided just by knowing that and so that's that's the whole point of my work more than anything and i think it's a sad fact in our medical field in general nowadays it's like you almost got to do some research and educate yeah. yourself no matter what your medical ailment is you we sort of all used to fall into this thing where we just went to the doctor and whatever they said yeah. that's just what you do and thinking that they know best and then now we find out like they're motivated by all sorts of different things yeah. these are old information, not updated information, insurance company, insurance companies <laughs> yeah. derive what they can recommend. And, not, you know, there's so many things. So you do need to kind of do a little bit of your own education and, and yep. try to participate actively in what you're being prescribed and yes. all that. And all then that. I, I think that's a great way to just kind of come back to what we were talking at the beginning, which is that the end of the day, your whole life, including your, you know, medical experience, needs to be driven by what you feel is best for you on the inside because mm. the reality of the situation now and i mean it's very easy to take what we've talked about in this conversation and how you know people can easily twist that into like doctor blaming and in some cases that's valid i mean like i can blame i can certainly blame my doctors but caroline clearly has a doctor who's better than mine were so <laughs> right like doctor blaming you know as a blanket concept is is a pretty useless uh, road to go down but the reality is it's better to understand what doctors are dealing with these days um and if you think about like being a doctor's really changed over the past 10 years you know it's not the same field that it was when we were growing up in the 80s and 90s like not only is there so much more information out there now and so many more different kinds of drugs and possible treatments, like you really cannot expect one single person to be the expert on the entire, like, yes, they are the expert, but they cannot be the expert even more, um, even more acutely on the whole pamp, you know, the, 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 the folders of drugs that they have in, that in there are, that are available to them. Right. I mean, like if they've got 
you know, however many patients they have, they could have patients on 300 patients on 300 different drugs. There's no way one human can literally be an expert on that. And so, but here's the thing, you and your body, like I'm pretty much an expert on Wellbutrin and Effexor XR because those are the two primary drugs I was on. I never spent any time on Lexpro. I know a little bit about it because it's my, you know, it's my work, but I don't know enough to know how it, you know, affects you, Caroline. And so my job is to be the expert, the expert on how Effexor and Wellbutrin affects me and what I need to know about those drugs. So then if I go to my doctor and I say like, look, I've researched this. I know what could happen. I think that these things are happening to me. You need to find a doctor who's going to, who wants to be a team with you. And then you help each other, right? Because they're going to know things you don't know, but you know yourself better than they will ever know you. And so if you find someone who can be a team with you and support you through your choices, that's the kind of doctor that I want to champion and go to all day long. If you've got a doctor who you come to them and say, I think this drug is hurting me, or this is not a good choice for me, or I need to whatever. And that person tries to fight you and tell you you're wrong because he know or she knows more than you. That to me is a red flag to get the hell out of that office and find somebody new because that's ego. And that's someone who does not know you as well as you know you. So if you can find a doctor who can, you can be a really good team that's how people heal. That's how people get better. That's how medicine should work. It's really difficult because I don't know, maybe there's not a good one in your network. I mean, it's a complete and total, you know, cluster out there, but that should be the goal. It should be teamwork. And at the end of the day, you know, you better than anybody else. You have to advocate for yourself and you have to educate yourself because they can't do it. They're busy billing insurance. It's like, that's the reality. Well, thank you very much for coming on today, Brooke. Was there anything else we missed or anything you wanted to add in closing? Anything you want to promote besides the book? Yeah, so the, the book is May Cause Side Effects. It's available wherever books are sold, bookstores, Amazon, um, Audible, wherever you want to find it. My website is Brooke Seem, B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M. And it's also at Brooke Seem on all the socials that I occasionally uh engage in um i also have a newsletter called happiness is a skill which you can find at learnhappy.substack.com awesome we'll be sure to link some of that stuff in our show notes there'll also be a link to the book on audible um if you sign up for the three free 30-day trial i think it is uh they'll give us some money if you sign up through our show link so (laughs) go on get your free copy check out the book it's really great really entertaining um, thank you very much for coming on. I really enjoyed the book and I really appreciated your time. You're welcome. Yeah, thank, thank you, guys. you Brooke. Yeah, thank you, Brooke. This was amazing. Yeah. Have a great day. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us.